Our pericope this evening is from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin our reading in chapter 16, reading through part of chapter 17. So beginning at Matthew 16, verse 13, and reading through 17, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels... And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they shall see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came 
and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Our text is chapter 16, verse 21 through 23. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So far the reading of God's inspired holy word. Last week we began to look at the disciples' reaction to Jesus' coming passion and suffering and death. They were troubled. Their hearts were troubled. And now more particularly we're going to look at the disciple Peter as the spokesman for those disciples. Indeed, Jesus is the Messiah. The beautiful confession of Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So our pericope that we have read tonight begins with that beautiful confession. That Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah or Savior. But as Jesus now teaches, he begins to teach them what the Messiahship meant. Whatever trials, whatever unpleasantries must be passed through on the way to glory and majesty and splendor. For most of the Jews, and for the disciples also of Jesus, the Messiahship of Jesus meant unperiled, unadulterated glory. Yes, there might be some unpleasantries. Yes, those chief priests, they are a real pain. But glory, Jesus is going to enter into his glory. Jesus points out to them, as soon as they confess that he is the Christ, what the essence of being a Messiah is. For Jesus' suffering was the essence of being the Messiah. Jesus spells it out there in verse 21. And hearing that, learning that lesson, they find it very difficult indeed. Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, makes three declarations in our pericope. And we need to study them closely and together. There is a growing opposition and growing intensity of the opposition to Christ. It becomes more and more intense. It becomes more and more deliberate. For many, there was no room for the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. 
for many there's no room for the Messiah of Scripture. The concept of a suffering Savior had no place in the thinking of those who held to a doctrine of works. Live a godly life, do the best you can, and you will go to heaven. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples in the beginning of chapter 16, take heed. Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. First, the disciples think he's talking about the bread that they're going to be purchasing, but he's talking about false doctrines. And false doctrines continue to float around in the church, and you and I need to be weary and weary of false teachings. What is the Messiahship of Jesus all about? Now, I titled my sermon, Jesus' Foretaste of Glory, because it does end, doesn't it? It begins with a confession, and it ends with God's declaration. But really what we have in these three declarations of Peter, the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' Messiahship. So notice with me Peter's beautiful confession. Notice with me, second of all, Peter's awful suggestion and notice then, thirdly, the divine confirmation of Jesus' sonship and his work. A beautiful confession. It comes after Jesus' question to his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Why does Jesus ask that question? Not because he has to gain information for himself. He well knew what the people thought about him, especially the chief priests and the scribes and the Sadducees. Jesus' purpose, according to John Kelvin, was, I quote, to establish his disciples solidly in a sure faith. They would stand in it virtually all alone. Jesus would begin to teach at this time concerning his approaching death. The people's rejection of him in a very real way belonged to his Messiahship. For as we read in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it's after all those prevailing opinions are stated... Even Herod thought maybe Jesus first was John the Baptist come back to life or that he is another prophet or that he is Jeremiah or Elijah. Jesus asked the question, but whom say ye that I am? And I'm going to ask that question here tonight of us. Because that's what always God does when he sets before us his son in the scriptures. God says, what do you think of my Christ? Do you fall down in worship? Do you acknowledge him as such? Or are you too full of the world and thoughts of the world and daily cares to give it a lot of thought? Whom say ye that I am? Had their confidence in Jesus been shaken when he refused to be a king that the Jews wanted to make him when he fed the 5,000? Were they disappointed when he didn't substantiate his claims in the beginning of the chapter with the Pharisees? They asked for a sign from heaven. Judas Iscariot probably already had concluded that Jesus was not the Christ. At least he was not the kind of Messiah that fit into Judas' ambitious plans. And the disciples, that is the eleven also, no doubt, their faith was not always what it should have been. Theirs was an imperfect faith. Yes, they too could be shaken by the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
whom say ye that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman for the disciples, makes that beautiful confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies to that confession, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Barjona means really in Hebrew, the son of Jonas. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas. He makes that confession as a spokesman for the disciples, not just the 11 now, but also many other disciples, that is, followers of Jesus at that time, but also countless others through the ages that confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now I put it to you, I put it to myself, is that your confession? What think ye of my Christ? What do you think of the Christ while he hangs there on the cross, dying amongst thieves? God's word tells us that those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, are blessed. They have eternal life. And what, it, what it was it that enabled Peter and the eleven then to make that kind of beautiful confession? And how is it that you and I, with Peter, can make that confession? How is it that we see Jesus as the Christ when many others do not recognize him as the Son of God. And Jesus' answer to Peter makes it very clear. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So it's not our superior intellect that helps us make that conclusion. It's not human reason at all. No other way does one confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, except by revelation. God, by his word and by his spirit, winging to our heart that knowledge, that confidence. Our Father, which is in heaven, reveals it to us. And Jesus then says, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock will I build my church. No, no, not that Peter now is made superior, uh, has supreme authority in the church, as the Roman Catholic Church wants to teach. We may not, we cannot separate the words of the confession that Peter had just made from the man who made it. Peter, which means rock. Jesus rightly calls Simon Peter, for he had confessed the truth that is the very foundation for the Christian faith. Upon that rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. Some of you might know that that is the title of the three books that Don Duzema wrote on the life and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, a wonderful trilogy of books. Linsky writes, by her confession, the church shows on what she is built. The church rests upon the reality that Peter confessed, namely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a beautiful confession. Peter, that's the rock. That's the rock. That's the first declaration of Peter. To Jesus' question, who do men say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? Jesus is the Christ. Second of all, second point, Peter's awful suggestion. The disciples were probably delighted with Jesus' response to their confession that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. yes. Yes, he acknowledged what they confessed about him. And he even said that they were blessed. But now was not yet the time to reveal it. 
Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet. Why? Why is it? It's because they were not ready and the world was not yet ready to know what the Messiahship of Jesus Christ is all about. They were looking for a political figure to satisfy the earthly and material ambitions of the Jews. Jesus, a king, but is he, do they need him as a redeemer from sin? No, the disciples were not at all yet prepared for that, and the world was not yet prepared for that. They were looking for earthly power and majesty. So I want you to notice that Jesus' instruction concerning his impending suffering and death begins immediately after that confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why did he have to show that his kingdom would be ushered in not with great pomp, not with great riches, not with joyful applause, but a shameful death. What a difficulty. They had hoped he would be the author of earthly happiness. How different from the splendid Messiah that they were hoping for, the people's expectations. Go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die. Jesus reveals there the essence of being the Messiah, the promised Messiah. What that work of being the Messiah entails. Not glory immediately, but trials and unpleasant suffering. Not just some unpleasant trees that he has to suffer on the way to get to the glory, but the essence of being our Messiah. It is through death and suffering. Jesus begins a slow process at this point. After the confession, thou art the Christ, to point out what it all entails. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes. I must die. And Jesus continues through the book of Matthew to show that. If you have your Bible still open yet, we read there in Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. I have to die. Verse 12, But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they know him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, and likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Boys and girls, do you remember how Jezebel and King Ahab sought Elijah to slay him because of his testimony of the one true God? Then later on in that same chapter, verses 22 and 23, and while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. Then we go to Matthew chapter 20. And there in verses 18 and 19. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. The next chapter in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, we read in verses 38 and 39, but when the husbandmen saw the son, they said unto themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. 
and they caught him and cast him out to the vineyard and slew him. Matthew 26, we read in verse 2 there, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Jesus points out, beginning after that confession, Thou art the Christ, what does that entail? Not instant glory, but it is necessary for him to suffer. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And we'll look, Lord willing, next week at Thomas's answer when Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem. He will be rejected by the hateful chief scribes and priests. And he would be killed and he would be raised to life. And as many times as Jesus talks about his resurrection, the disciples can't take it in because they can't take in the message that their Lord, their master, is going to suffer and die. Their attention is there on that suffering, that death of the cross, and they could not fit it in to their understanding of what it means for Christ to be the Savior, the Messiah, the King of his people. No, Jesus, they say. No, Jesus, we don't want to hear about suffering and death. Why? Why is that necessary? Why a shameful death? Is not there Jesus, the master and author of earthly happiness? Yes, we read after Peter's beautiful confession, from that time began Jesus to show unto them how he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die. How different that was from the splendid Messiah of the people's expectations. But that's the general crowd what about Jesus' disciples that are with him, that have listened to him, that have seen his powerful works? What is their reaction now to his coming death? Little, very little did they understand the Old Testament messianic prophecies. Especially the prophecy of Isaiah of the suffering servant of Jehovah. No, 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 certainly Jesus, the Son of God. You can achieve the kingdom by just stretching out your hand and taking it by power. They did not want to listen when Jesus talked about his death. And therefore they had no place yet in their theology for his resurrection. All they heard was Jerusalem where there were those who were plotting to kill him. And Jesus had escaped earlier from that. All they could hear was Jesus talking about suffering, rejected, despised, and death. And they react out of a misguided love and fear. Oh, they do love Jesus Christ. And yes, they do believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. But they're afraid. Peter initiates the disciples' reaction. Jesus took, Peter took Jesus aside, we read. Kind of as a naughty little boy is taken aside by the principal or by the teacher. He takes him aside with a superior attitude as if he knows better than Jesus how things should take place. As if he knows better what the master should do. Like Jesus' mother. Do you remember at the wedding of Cana 
she took Jesus aside and said, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Hey, Jesus, this is your opportunity now to shine. Just do the miracle and the people are going to love you, especially providing all that wine. Trying to help Jesus have his kingdom and become a king. Like you and I sometimes, if a loved one is sick or a loved one is taken away from us and we say in our hearts in rebellion, no God, no, that's not the way I want it. That's not the way it should be. I don't want that sickness. I don't want that death. I don't want this in my life. I think I know better than you, Lord. How in the world... The disciples must have wondered, could the Jewish multitudes reject the Jewish Messiah? Peter says, God forbid. May God spare you, Jesus. Peter wanted to be protective of his master, of his rabbi, of his teacher, of his friend. Did Jesus at this particular time in his life as a man need that kind of support or approval? Did he need companions to stand by him and say there's an easier way? Notice Jesus' rebuke. You and I might sympathize with Peter and the 11. Maybe even defend them in this instance. They love Jesus so much they don't want to see him going through that suffering and death. They don't want him to leave them. They don't want their cause to come to an end in their own minds. How awful to think of their master being murdered by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. In love and fear for him, they say, no, 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 Jesus. That's not the way. And it deserves a stern rebuke. For there's much more involved than just a loving concern of the disciples for Jesus' well-being. It carried... They were carried away with an earthly view of life and what is best. Instant glory and happiness. Jesus rebuke, get me, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus is saying to Peter, whom he called before the rock, Satan, go away. What a different name. In the same pericope, Peter is called the rock, and he is also called Satan. Because he's not thinking about God's appointed way of saving his people, of Jesus being our Savior and Lord, which entailed suffering God's wrath for our sins which includes death, the shedding of blood, the Old Testament sacrifices that were done every day and every year. Blood being shed because of sins that need to be washed away. What a rebuke and what a re reaction and rejection of Peter's suggestion. Lord, God forbid that. We don't want that. You see, Jesus recognized Peter's words there, his suggestion, as really an attempt of Satan. Satan to lure him away from the God-appointed way. We have here a temptation just as real as the temptations that Jesus underwent the 40 days in the wilderness. Satan then came to Jesus also as a friend. And, Jesus, and Satan says to Jesus, why are you hungry? Why are you fasting here for 40 days? Just speak the word and there's bread. You don't have to suffer. 
Why go the way of the cross? Just climb up on the tower of the temple and throw yourself down and his angels are going to catch you and everyone's going to acknowledge you as their king. That's the easy way. Don't suffer. Or finally taking him to the four corners of the world there where he could see all the kingdoms around here and Satan says, as a friend, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to follow your father's way. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you these kingdoms for I am the prince of darkness that owns these kingdoms of the world. Now Satan comes with another temptation and he uses a close companion Simon Peter, one of those three disciples that were the closest to the Savior. Be our king. Be our king. But let this notion of suffering be far from thee. Peter is unaware at this time. He is following the sinful desires of his own flesh. He was being a willing helper of Satan. And notice, beloved, that is often how Satan works. He uses someone very close to us. Travel with me a moment back into history to the Garden of Eden. How is Satan going to get Adam, who is the head of the human race, who was commissioned that he could eat of all the trees of the, of the garden except for the one tree, thou shalt not eat of it, thou wilt surely die. How is he going to get Adam to succumb? And, Adam takes, or, and Satan takes Adam's wife, Eve. And with Eve's suggestion... Showing the fruit to her husband, Adam falls. And now Satan takes Peter, one of the closest companions of Jesus here on earth, to say, don't go the way of suffering. It's not necessary. And you young people, especially young adults, beware because Satan would love to take one of your close companions, one whom you trust, to say to you, it doesn't matter if you do this. Go ahead, do it. After all, God forgives us anyhow. What's a little bit sex on your dates? What's a little bit stealing from the store? They charged way too high prices anyhow. The devil will take close friends, maybe a husband, maybe a wife, maybe a brother or a sister in the family. Let's do this. It's okay. A willing helper of Satan. Oh, Peter, from that mountain peak of faith confessing Jesus as the Christ, down into the valley of being used by Satan to tempt Jesus away from the way of suffering for our sins. Do you see, beloved, that Jesus' death is so, so central to God's plan of redemption that to avoid that suffering and death would be the work of the evil one. Peter was taken from the position of Satan in the temptation, Satan now using him. Jesus rebukes him, and he says to him, you're a stumbling block. The Greek word there is scandalon. It's the word that we get our English word scandalous from. The suggestion of Peter is scandalous. In other words, it's like a trap. That's what it literally means. A trap. A trap with bait. Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Instant glory. You're the son of God. You can do whatever you want. A trap, boys and girls, like a trap that you might set for a mouse with a piece of cheese on it. Or a trap that some of you trappers might have to get a raccoon you put some bait on it, 
and the animal comes and it's after that bait. It sees that bait. It delights in that bait. And there, it snaps shut. Destruction. Peter, you are not on God's side in your suggestion. It's natural for him to think about honor and glory and majesty and comfort and security. But Jesus himself and those who follow Jesus, Jesus is saying here, set your will upon it. You also will have to be willing to suffer, to deny yourself, to take up your cross to follow me. Peter, the suggestion of Peter was a great temptation, a tool of the devil to lure our Jesus out of the way, our Jesus who came in our human nature who could have those temptations hurled at him, but as the divine Son of God could not fall for those temptations. I want you to notice that Jesus did not waver for even a moment. Just as Jesus did not waver at all there in the wilderness for those 40 days when he was tempted, he would not go any other way than the way that his father had described for him. Listen to him in the garden of Gethsemane. If it's possible, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. He is the obedient, suffering servant of God. He loved his Father in heaven, and he loves all those whom, Jesus has, uh, whom God has given to Jesus in eternity. No adversary could keep him from doing what was necessary to save his people. The disciples did not at this point understand yet the necessity of suffering and death. Why suffering and death? Because of our sins. Jesus must suffer the wrath of God for our sins. For Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Jesus must satisfy God's justice. Sin must be punished. The sinner must be punished. Jesus Christ, standing our place, you're my place. He became the sinner before God. Not of his own sins, but the sins of his people laid upon him. He must suffer and die. And the disciples should have known that from the repeated offerings every day in the temple, every year, blood being shed to cover sins. No, the blood of goats and of bulls does not take away sins. It only pointed forward to the perfect one, the Son of God in our flesh, who took our place and died for us. And not only must Jesus suffer and die, but all those who follow Jesus must also expect to suffer for Jesus' sake. Set your will upon it. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to be rebuked or to be persecuted or to be ridiculed. Why do you go to church again? Why do you spend your money for Christian education? Why don't you come and join us down at the bar and have a couple drinks? Why not engage in this or that sin? Deny yourself. Take up your cross to follow Jesus. Peter's beautiful confession Second of all, Peter's awful, awful suggestion. Jesus' strong rebuke. 
he who called Simon Peter calls him Satan. Oh, those fickle disciples of Jesus. They cannot at this point enter into his suffering. It is only later, after Jesus Christ has risen again and explains why that cross was necessary, and only later on when the Spirit enables them to understand that this is the way for Christ Jesus, and this is the way for all those who follow Christ Jesus. Satan. Satan is the cause for Peter's awful suggestion, just as God was the cause for Peter's beautiful confession in the first point. May we be faithful followers of Christ. May we be led to Christ and may we know Christ and confess Christ by God's own revelation of him in his word. And all the attempts of Satan to lead us astray to seek the things of this world, an easy life. May they perish with Satan. There's a promised reward for those who follow Christ Jesus. Yes, they need to suffer, but then as John Calvin again writes, those for whom confession of faith is more precious than their own lives, do not fight in vain. The Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with his angels and he will reward every man according to his works. And yes, even 40 years later, there would be some of those disciples still around, namely the evangelist John, who would see Christ coming in judgment on the Jews who put Jesus to death. Rome destroys Jerusalem. Three declarations of Peter. The confession, thou art the Christ. The awful suggestion, don't suffer and die. God forbid. Thirdly, the divine confirmation of Jesus' sonship. Yes, he asked the disciples and God revealed enough to them that they knew that Jesus was the Christ. But as Jesus approaches the suffering and death that's heavy on his mind, he descends as a man into the valley of humiliation and death. He's burdened with those thoughts of the way that is set before him. And so he seeks communion with his God and along with his disciples in prayer. Luke chapter 9 we read, that Jesus took Peter and James and John to the mount to pray. Do you see Jesus Christ as he came in like form as us, a man who knows what it is to suffer? He desires human companionship. There is Peter and James and John just as later on, it's Peter, James, and John that are taken with Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he asked them again to pray with him. Pray and also be witnesses of God's answer to Jesus' pray. Jesus wanted to pray to his Father for the strength and encouragement for himself as he faced that suffering and death, obedience to his Father's will. He prays for his disciples that they may remain faithful in the days ahead when their faith will be sorely tried. Jesus prays. And the transfiguration that takes place there on that mountain comes as God's answer to the Savior's prayer. The disciples fall asleep. They cannot enter into the suffering of Jesus. And that is also right. For we are not saved by the suffering of Jesus and his disciples. We are saved by the suffering of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus alone is our Savior. Jesus alone in his suffering and death atoned for our sins. 
while they're sleeping. God answers Jesus' prayer for strength for what he must go through by sending down Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, representing the whole Old Testament scriptures as they pointed out through the types that there must be bloodshed for our salvation, for atonement, for our sins. The disciples awake to the blazing glory there. Jesus' son, uh, Jesus' face shining like the sun, and even his clothing white, dazzling white. They don't hear the words that Moses and Elijah bring. They're not recorded for us in Scripture, but surely, surely God sends the law and the prophets to point out to Jesus very clearly, yes, this is the way, the necessary way. Yes, you must suffer and die on the cross to save my sinful people, to atone for their sins. Not only is there that transformation of Jesus' person, but then the cloud comes over them. What is that cloud? It's the cloud of glory, isn't it? It's the, the cloud which announces God's presence as he came down upon the tabernacle when it was built and God filled it. And when Solomon built the temple, the Shekinah glory came down upon that temple. God dwelled there in the midst of his people. But when Herod rebuilds the temple and the Ark of the Covenant isn't even in it, we do not read of the cloud of glory coming upon that temple. For the cloud of the glory is going to come down on the real temple. For Jesus said, I am the temple of God. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. God's presence comes upon Jesus and the disciples wake up to see it. And they hear that voice, the voice of God from within the clouds saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, there was that voice that came from heaven when Jesus was baptized. And now that voice comes again as Jesus prepares to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Oh, God is delighted in his obedient, suffering son, servant. And then Peter. Oh, Peter, you don't know when to keep your mouth shut, do you? Did you, Peter, hear that you were an instrument of Satan tempting Jesus not to go to the cross, not to go to Jerusalem? But you don't want to let go of that, do you? For Peter says, this is glorious for us to be here. Let us make three little tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And let's prolong our time here. Oh, let's not go to Jerusalem. Let's not go to suffering and death. Let's stay here on the mountain and enjoy Jesus' glory and majesty as it shines forth. Peter, Peter, Peter. The suffering of our Savior is necessary. A short little glimpse given to Jesus and a short little glimpse given to the disciples to know what is going to be the result. That God is going to be glorified by his obedient servant who lays down his life for his sheep. What comfort for Jesus, first of all, for himself. The cloud of glory came upon him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father says, yes, I know what I'm doing when I send you to the cross. For I have a sinful people that I have given to you in eternity. And they need to be saved. Their sins need to be forgiven. They need to be delivered from the power of sin and death. 
Yes, Jesus. As you suffered all of your life under my wrath, and now especially in this last couple weeks, I'm glorified by you. There's nothing better than to hear the Father's words that he's glorified in his Son. And someday that he will say that to you and me also. The disciples were sore afraid when that cloud of glory came there. But Jesus comes to them. They're bowed down in fear. And we read here, and I think they're important words, and Jesus touched them. I hope that with the troubles that we've had as churches of sexual abuse, that it doesn't go to the extreme that we're afraid of any kind of human touch. Now I'm talking about appropriate touches. Not inappropriate touches, but appropriate touches. Hugs at times of fellow saints who enjoy each other, who need each other, or a sympathetic touch. I care for you, I cry for you. Jesus touched them. How important is that touch? Jesus could feel for these disciples that were afraid at seeing such glory and afraid also of what and how it would come about through the cross. What was the purpose of Jesus' trans transfiguration? What did it mean? It served as a confirmation of the fact that Jesus was indeed the Son of God as he goes to the cross, as he suffers, and as he dies. The disciples wouldn't fully understand that till after Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost. But then, as we read in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, as Peter writes, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were made eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is able to reflect later on on the meaning of that transfiguration. This Jesus who is set to go to the cross and to die, he goes there as the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior our deliverer, our redeemer. But as important as it is for the future work of the apostles, God must have first of all meant it to serve as a comfort and assurance to Jesus himself. You see, the disciples could not enter into Jesus' suffering and death. They were just unable to. Unable here, unable in the garden, unable when he is nailed to the cross and they all flee away from him. Jesus is left alone, ah, but not alone. But his father gives him a wonderful testimony. Jesus, the father is saying, here is a foretaste of the glory that's going to be yours. Jesus, here is the necessity, Moses and Elijah, the Old Testament scriptures of Christ being the suffering servant. What is the shame for a little while of suffering and death compared to the glory of heaven? The cross is the way to the crown for Jesus and for everyone who follows him. Are you willing to suffer for Christ's sake? Are you willing to lay down your life for Christ's sake? Listen to the voices of the martyrs. Read their literature. How they are willing to be put in prison. How they are willing to die for witnessing to Christ Jesus to a neighbor. What glory, what comfort, what assurance for Jesus himself. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Suffering, dying for you and for me.
No, no, Peter, you can't remain there on that mountaintop. You can't prolong that temporary picture of majesty and glory. First, there is suffering and death for your master and for every one of the apostles. They would die for the sake of Jesus. The only one accepted was John, who was banned out there on the island of Patmos for a long time. There's a question at the end of our pericope about Elijah. It's interesting. After the disciples had seen Jesus there, they, they come with a question, what about Elijah? Why must he come first? Isn't the whole point of Elijah, as Elijah suffered for the sake of God's cause, he was a picture of Jesus Christ. Yes, he must go to the cross, and he willingly went to the cross to take away your, my sins, so that for him and for us, there will be eternal glory. Amen. Father in heaven, as we travel with our Lord Jesus through his suffering and through his death, May we be enlightened by thy word even as Peter had to be enlightened and rebuked by Jesus Christ. The way to glory is the way of the cross, suffering. We're thankful for that obedient son, thy, Lord, thy son Jesus Christ, his complete obedience, his wonderful sacrifice, and our salvation. Amen.